Big Thinking, celebrating 175 years of Bradley College with fascinating speakers from our community. Stepping up to our virtual podium, I'd like to introduce Catherine Garrett-Cox, who, as one of Britain's most prominent businesswomen, has championed environmental, social and corporate governance, otherwise known as ESG, throughout her financial services career. Currently, she is Chief Executive of Gulf International Bank Asset Management, and prior to that, she served on Deutsche Bank's advisory group for nine years and was a member of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Group under David Cameron. More recently, Catherine has been made chair of recipe box firm Gusto, the British meal kit company, which was founded 10 years ago and is one of the UK's few profitable unicorns. A unicorn is a privately held company valued at over one billion. And no, I did not know that before this evening. Catherine was awarded a CBE for services to the asset management industry and a charitable services through the Bearing Foundation. I think you'll agree from all of that, that amazing intro, that she is very well qualified to talk about her vision of companies of the future and how they need to redefine themselves to stay relevant for the workforce of the future. As I said earlier, after her talk, she'll be questioned, possibly interrogated, by a current 6'2 Radlian, Jack Jacobs, who will also direct any questions from the chat function to Catherine on your behalf. Finally, that is enough from me now. Over to you, Catherine. Thank you very much. Well, good evening, Caroline. Thank you very much for uh, such a generous introduction. And it is wonderful to see so many people on the call this evening. Um, so uh, in terms of um, my talk, I really wanted to start by going back in time. So last November, we were hugely proud to have the opportunity to see our son, Cosmo, confirmed in the beautiful newly enlarged chapel at Radley College. The complexities of trying to hold a confirmation service during the pandemic had led to numerous delays. So the chance to finally celebrate with him and many other boys who had waited so long for this much planned milestone had particular importance to all of us who were there that day. During the service, the Bishop of Dorchester spoke about the need for the boys to reflect upon the specific mark they wanted to leave upon the world. And most notably, he challenged all of us to think about what we wish to be remembered for when all is said and done. This was very much being said in the spirit of Remembrance Sunday, when we all have an annual opportunity to reflect upon those who have laid down their lives over the years, those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. However, it did cause me to pause and think about how Bishop Gavin's words had relevance to our conversation today. In large part, therefore, the topic that I would like to discuss with you this evening is centered upon what really matters in our own lives. What drives us? What gives us purpose? And how it's so critical for each of us to believe that how we spend our working days actually makes a difference. This January marks the start of my 32nd year working in financial services. And in truth, if anyone had asked me when I was leaving school what I thought I'd be doing now, I am pretty certain that financial services would never have featured. As someone who spent most of my time at school embracing foreign languages, music and drama, a career in the city appeared completely at odds with an industry that didn't seem to fit with my purpose. However, here I sit over three decades later, and I can honestly say that it was and continues to be the most perfect choice if you want to make a difference to the world around you. 
Over the years, I have had the great privilege of meeting extraordinary people. I've traveled extensively, I've worked with outstanding leaders, and I've been given amazing opportunities. So what, you might say? Well, as Winston Churchill once said, with great power comes great responsibility. And so I have made it my mission in life to build, transform, and develop asset management companies, to invest in businesses that offer exceptional returns for those willing to jump in, and most importantly, to identify and mentor the next generation of leaders. One of my old mentors once told me that it is possible to do well and do good, and this mantra has been a driving force in my professional life. Around 20 years ago, when the whole concept of responsible investing, sustainability, and environmental considerations were absent from many discussions, I had the great fortune to meet someone whose purpose ran through him like blood runs through our veins. He is an Ulradlian, and from the moment I met him and we worked together, I was hooked on the notion that you can invest for good. You can encourage companies to make better decisions that look after their employees, protect the planet, and this leads to better governance and better performance all round. We had the great fortune to work together for 10 years in two different organizations. And through our conviction that this was the right way to make money, we became one of the founding signatories to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment in 2006, where 60 investment firms gathered in Paris to sign a groundbreaking declaration to support these principles. The UNPRI, as it is known, is the world's leading proponent of responsible investment. It works to understand the investment implications of environmental, social and governance, or ESG, factors, and to support its international network of investor signatories in incorporating these factors into their investment and ownership decisions. The PRI acts in the long-term interests of its signatories, of the financial markets and economies in which they operate, and ultimately of the environment and society as a whole. 16 years after becoming a founding signatory, I'm thrilled to see that these principles are the global standard for the investment industry, representing over 3,800 signatories at the end of 2021, collectively responsible for over $1 trillion of assets under management worldwide. Working with my team, we also helped to shape the Transparency and Supply Chain Initiative within the Modern Slavery Bill, where I found myself debating this topic in the House of Commons. In addition, we spearheaded the investor movement to promote the Rana Plaza Fire and Safety Accord, mobilizing trillions of dollars after the collapse of the Rana Plaza Garment Factory in 2013, where over 1,000 mainly female garment workers died. Ever since then, a key part of my investment philosophy and motivation has been to seek out those companies that are solving the world's greatest challenges. These challenges can be for our people, for example, affordable care, medical efficacy, fitness or safe mobility, or our planet, water, clean energy, electrified mobility, future food systems. My investment philosophy in essence is to find businesses that do good and align purpose with their business goals. I firmly believe that these are the companies that will generate superior financial returns 
by driving positive societal and environmental change. And thus the reallocation of capital towards these firms is the role that forward-thinking investors should take in creating a better world for future generations. This is what we do at GIB Asset Management. By way of example, I'd like to highlight three case studies of companies that I've been exposed to who are seeking to tackle some of the world's greatest challenges, a challenge that is central to or who has formed their purpose. The first example is Aptiv. Aptiv is a company that makes products and solutions of the highest quality to address mobility's toughest challenges and meet consumer needs for advanced technologies. They aim to transform society by enabling safer, greener, and more connected mobility. They hold an unmatched position in the industry with deep capabilities in software development, automotive grade industrialization, and systems integration. That is good corporate speak, but basically they make cars safer. The one value that underpins active values is acting responsibly and ethically in every circumstance by doing the right thing the right way. The challenge is that with 1.4 million people dying on our roads every year, road traffic accidents are the leading cause of death for people between the ages of five and 29. The solution, or at least part of the solution, is Aptiv's innovative technologies, such as their cameras and sensors. And these are critical on our global mission to halve fatalities from road accidents by 50%. For example, they design sensors that activate the brakes in a car before it is humanly possible to react. The systems they create are known as advanced driver assistance systems, and these life-saving products are set to grow 22% a year to create a $31 billion market by 25 in an industry that traditionally doesn't grow. My second example is Train Technologies, a global manufacturer of climate control products for commercial and residential heating, ventilation and air conditioning, and transport refrigeration. With a focus on secular sustainability megatrends of energy efficiency and sustainability, train technologies, in their words, boldly challenge what's possible for a sustainable world. They aim to bring efficient and sustainable climate solutions to buildings, homes, and transportation through their products, services, and solutions related to heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. Again, lots of words but basically they support smart buildings. The critical positive impact that they highlight is the gigaton challenge to reduce one gigaton of their customers' carbon emissions by 2030, which is equivalent to 2% of world emissions or the annual emissions of the UK, France, and Italy combined. In essence, one company can change an industry and one industry can change the world. They are solving one of the challenges facing our planet with real purpose. Their mantra is, today we take bold action, so tomorrow there's a better world for everyone. The scale of the global sustainability challenge is far beyond the capacity of the public sector alone. Sustainable finance is needed to complement it by channeling private capital into the transition to a low carbon and sustainable inclusive economy. So my third case study is GIB Asset Management. 
We believe that the best way to conduct business is to have sustainability embedded throughout every aspect of the company or organization itself. It should not be added on retrospectively. There's a clear alignment between financial performance and purpose. Evidence shows us that in the long run, a high environmental, social and governance rating translates to higher returns, even when compared to non-ESG related funds. With ESG at the core of everything we do, we have seen a clear alignment between incorporating these factors into investment decisions and better returns. In addition, embedding sustainability into the core of our business practices has enabled a more comprehensive review of the risks and opportunities leading to better investment decisions. In 2021, the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing released a study called Sustainable Funds Outperform Peers During 2020 Coronavirus. The study showed that in a year of extreme volatility and recession, funds focused on environmental, social and governance factors across both stocks and bonds weathered the year better than non-ESG portfolios. The research analyzes more than 3,000 US mutual funds and exchange traded funds, finding that sustainable equity funds outperformed their non-ESG peer funds by a median total return of 4.3% in 2020. At GIB, our approach is focused on investing in good companies. However, a key part of our philosophy is also engaged with the rest. As everyone has to reach net zero, and to survive as a company, many need to transform into companies of the future. Engagement rather than divestment is essential, especially when it comes to the transition to a more sustainable future. Engaging with businesses over their sustainability decisions is a much more effective strategy to influence their behaviors than simply eliminating the company from consideration altogether. All of these companies of the future have a drive and commitment to sustainable and responsible business that is integral to all of their actions and decisions. Tackling the world's biggest challenges requires innovative collaboration, dedication, and a healthy amount of ambition. You may be surprised that thus far, I have only spoken about the private sector. In the past, solving challenges that our people and planet face was something that was incorrectly left to or assigned to governments, charities, NGOs. However, I hope that through my explanation, examples and past experiences, it's becoming clear that the private sector does have a significant role to play, but it can't do it alone. The first half of 2019 saw unprecedented recognition of the climate emergency with mass climate protests, school strikes, warnings from the Bank of England, and new advice from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, urging the government to set a new target to deliver net zero greenhouse gases by 2050. It was and continues to be clear that we need to act fast to deliver on this level of ambition to save our people and our planet. But emissions continue to rise. Globally, our current trajectory is moving us rapidly towards more than two degrees Celsius of warming, which for the UK will bring hotter, drier summers and milder, rainier winters 
with an increase in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. Sea level rise, biodiversity impacts, and loss of agricultural productivity are also the realities we're seeing, and the consequences of these changes are already being felt. Climate change is the defining crisis of our time, and it's happening even more quickly than we feared. If we continue on our current path, we will face the collapse of everything that gives us our security, including food production, access to fresh water, habitable ambient temperature, and ocean food chains. But we are far from powerless in the face of this global threat. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, pointed out in September, the climate emergency is a race we are losing, but it is a race we can win. While science tells us that climate change is irrefutable, it also tells us that it's not too late to stem the tide. This will require fundamental transformations in all aspects of society, how we grow food, use land, transport goods and power our economies. But the climate crisis can only be dealt with by unparalleled levels of global cooperation and requires the involvement of a wide variety of stakeholders, communities, businesses, and other government bodies. In reality, it requires all of us. No individual or individual organization will have the power to directly deliver all necessary actions but collective impact requires commitment, collaboration, and action towards clearly defined goals. That is why at GIB, we've chosen to partner with a number of leading initiatives and organizations focused on solving significant sustainability challenges, both in the investment management industry and beyond. We believe that through collaboration, we can collectively move from issues and challenges to solutions. The best topical example of collaboration, dedication, and ambition that we have partnered in would be the Blue Carbon Challenge, a global call for blue carbon initiatives focused on mangroves, seagrass, marsh, and seaweed, which could lead to carbon credits and or tools in finance, education, and training that improve trust and transparency in the blue carbon market. This initiative is being led by Friends of Ocean Action the Mangroves Working Group, and is run in partnership with supporting partners such as Salesforce and Conservation International, as well as ourselves. The focus of this challenge is to find blue carbon projects that advance the conservation and restoration of coastal and aquatic ecosystems that can enter the carbon market, as well as solutions that support and build trust and transparency in such projects. This challenge aims to support high quality projects in blue carbon supply and connect this supply with corporate demand. Around 50% of our lives will be spent working. That's a lot of time. And time is one of the few things you cannot recover in life. So hold on to this thought for a while. In the long run, no human being can spend time and energy on something they don't believe in. It has to mean something. That's why organizations of the future must embody a sense of purpose. The only organizations capable of sustaining their most valuable members are those that have clear, ambitious, and transforming visions for the world. That is because we dream. 
We dream of exploring the unknown, fixing what seems to be unfixable, and creating what no one else thought about. This is how we develop, innovate, and discover what is out there in the universe. One dream or wish that often dominates the minds of our generation is to end the climate crisis and guarantee security on Earth for generations to come. For indeed, our generation is the first to truly understand the global challenges facing us all, and frankly, the last to be in a position to do something about it. We cannot let this moment of responsibility pass us by. Consequently, in a world that is becoming more connected, more competitive, and yet facing scarcer resources, the only way organizations can survive is by transmitting to their members the true importance of why they exist, what value they add, and what they are doing to help the urgent climate crisis. In other words, organizations of the future need to embody a sense of purpose, drive, and ambition that mirrors that of its current and future employees to tackle the challenges facing our people and planet. Meaningful work consistently ranks as something craved by our generation, and the prioritization of purpose over pay is growing. Today's talent is also more attracted to organizations whose values match their own. PwC's 2018 survey, Workforce of, Workforce of the Future, found that 88% of millennials want to work for a company whose values reflect their own, which is an essential driver for companies, and this number is only increasing. A further point is that the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the urgency for change, specifically around sustainability. A shock to the system has caused many to reassess how they've been living their lives, and this is being seen with regard to people wanting to have an impact and leave a legacy behind. The pandemic, as a stark reminder that we are not immortal, has caused many of us to ask fundamental questions about our life choices and whether or not these align with our core values. Living a life of purpose is the reality of today. Ensuring that your personal values are aligned with how you choose to spend your working life should stand at the forefront of your future career decisions. Perhaps many years ago, it used to be an area of compromise, but this is not the case anymore. So I suggest that you put your career in the hands of organizations that are doing good and connect your purpose with your career. So many companies are looking to the future, but what of individuals and how best to be attractive to future employers? From experience, the sorts of skills and attitudes that I believe will make individuals successful in their future careers include a drive to inspire and encourage people, intellectual curiosity, digital awareness, being adaptable to change, working collaboratively, and seeing the success that comes from partnerships, acting on what you believe in, and resilience, resilience in times of uncertainty. At GIB, we run a graduate program for some years now, it's designed to expose graduates to the many varied functions within the company and supports the future direction of their career. Whilst preparing for this talk, I asked a number of our graduates that have been with the company for varying amounts of time why they had chosen GIB and what they have learned from their experience so far. I selected two quotes from the many I received. One told me, I chose GIB 
as it was a company that from the outset appeared to provide an opportunity to make a difference. It's a hands-on firm where your work is valued. And another said, while at school, I was always told to choose a subject at university that I loved. Many people would go down a subject path that they thought would benefit them in the future, but I chose a subject purely because I was passionate about it. Reflecting on this advice, I believe you should adopt the same mindset when applying for a job. Choose something that you're passionate about. That is why I chose to work at GIB. The focus on people and planet and the impressive drive towards sustainability was a major point that attracted me to the company. Well, many of their remarks made me very proud that we have these colleagues as key members of our team. They challenge us, they hold us to account, and they keep us well informed on the world seen through their generational lens as much as ours. So to conclude, I'll take you back to the chapel at Radley College and the words of the Bishop of Dorchester, what we wish to be remembered for in the future should determine the decisions that we make and the actions that we take in the present. There are so many opportunities to make an impact and companies who are well positioned for the future will welcome all of you who wish to be agents of change. My lasting hope is that you make time to consider what really matters in your own life, what drives you, what gives you purpose, and most importantly, how you can genuinely make a difference to this amazing planet that we call our home. Thank you, and over to Jack. Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, such a person, and I think informative talk uh, that I've certainly found quite relevant, I think, to the world around us today. And it was on that last point, particularly regarding uh, what employers, um, or sorry, what employees look for in employers, uh, and how employers may have to adapt, especially regarding sustainability. Um, but I ask this perhaps as someone who may be going into uh, or looking for a job in a few years, how do you think it is that employers uh, will change what they are looking for within employees to kind of meet those goals of sustainability? What qualities would it be within uh, a prospective employee that they'd really be looking for? Well, it's a great question, Jack. And I think in part it is, I, I come back to what I said about, um, I think being, being a digital native, I think is really important. So um, I personally think it's great if you can learn to code, at least the very basics. I think that's a skill that people really look for because everything is becoming more automated, not in any way to undermine the importance of human intervention, but just to make things efficient. So I think being, being digitally savvy is really important. And I think the other thing I'd say is just be open-minded. Uh, there will be so many opportunities that you and your, your, um, your colleagues, your year group at Radley will have the opportunity to try. And, and sometimes opportunities come along that you didn't quite expect. And I would say embrace it, um, go for it. And uh, I'm absolutely certain you will shine in whatever career you choose uh, to pursue. Thank you. Uh, and I forgot to say, if there's anyone who has uh, any questions they would like, please put them in the chat function and I'll get to them. Uh, and I suppose the second one I was kind of wondering throughout is that what do you think within the financial sector are the greatest challenges to achieving greater sustainability? You know, what is really putting off other um, companies from making that leap towards sustainability? Is it 
you know, perhaps an issue of culture, maybe an emphasis too much on short-term profits, uh, or is it more one of resources where the private sector themselves just don't have the capacity, capacity to undertake enough of the risks? So another great question. And I think that um, if I'm honest, uh, the last few years have been peppered with people really trying to work out whether it actually costs more to manage organizations in a sustainable way. And sometimes there are processes and, and procedures and various things that you have to put in place that do cost more. Uh, sometimes you have to install um, better energy systems. Um, sometimes you have to dispense with plastic bottles and, and buy new smart glass bottles or give people something that they can use and just refill from the tap. So, you know, I use small examples, um, but I really think that we're moving forward in a way that that debate has sort of been had. And I think that there's just a natural tide that is now lifting people to really have the confidence that this is the right thing to do. And for years, I can tell you for years, there was this sort of, is it either or? Uh, no, I mean, our philosophy uh, is very much the whole idea that this is the best way to give best investment returns. And that these companies who are doing good, we feel it's our responsibility to shine a light on them. And uh, these are exciting times because there are just going to be so many opportunities for your generation to walk into companies, some of which probably don't even exist today. Uh, and I think that's fundamentally exciting um, as, as you look forward. No, I couldn't agree more. I think it's quite an exciting prospect for people of my generation, um, particularly, I think, regarding uh, you know, the financial sector and a lot of areas that we perhaps consider to be quite concrete and how they're constantly changing. Uh, but I'm just going to take some of the questions from the chat now. Uh, and if anyone has any more, please do put them in. Um, we first have, what are some of the common missteps that you see companies make with their corporate sustainability goals? So, um, yeah, well, <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> this is a great, this is a great uh, place to start as well. So I think probably one of the common missteps from at least my, my humble perspective would be that some people think that just banging out a nice flashy corporate sustainability report is enough. Um, and I think that really it goes to this point about, is it, is it genuine across the organization? So of course, reporting on what you're doing is important, um, but, but this is not, you know, I think what we're talking about here is not simply corporate social responsibility, which used to be sort of the domain of, well, I, you know, we donate and support that charity and we give people volunteering days and that's all great. Um, but it has to go beyond that. And so I think I would just say that people think putting out a nice report is enough, but I really encourage them to, to hold a mirror right up to themselves and say, well, if I came and really you know, walked around your organization and spoke to people, would it be real? Would it be authentic? And I think it's only the people that are doing it for real who really, really get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree. And I'd probably ask a question there myself uh, and just add, what do you think is probably the greatest risks with, for, uh, with following a sustainable approach? Um, and perhaps, you know, relating that to, I suppose, these common missteps uh, that companies can make, how do we get around these risks? I mean, I think, you know, what, what I would say is that um, I would maybe turn the question slightly on its head and say, I think it's a risk if you don't do this. 
Um, and uh, I think the exciting thing is, is that there are so many opportunities in front of us, depending upon what sort of industries, what kind of sectors, um, what part of the world you want to work in. Um, and I just simply think that one of the probably one of the biggest risks, um, if I can again be so bold, is to say that um, a lot of a lot of change is really happening at the grassroots level, sort of in the sort of if you like in the guts of these organisations. I think it is sometimes a risk if those who are either running the organisation or probably even those sitting in the boardroom that they don't necessarily get it. And so I think there's been you know a real need to increase awareness and education at all levels of the organization. But it is worth taking time to do this. And so even at GIB, I mean, we, you know, we've really been on this journey for, for three plus years now. It's not a lifetime, but we've come a really long way. But part of it is just engaging everyone through every single aspect. So actually, it's not something that we are telling people to do. They're coming up with these great innovations. And a lot of what we're now doing within our own business have been because people on the ground have said, how about we do this? How about we do that? And, and I just think if you can fuel people to be innovative and creative, um, that's a good place to start. Thank you. Uh, and perhaps relating to what you said earlier about, you know, if you look back uh, upon yourself now from the perspective of your younger self, uh, what piece of advice would you give to a sixth form boy such as myself uh, before he embarks into the working world? Well, luckily you've got a few years, Jack, but uh, we know that you have a glittering future at Oxford awaiting you. Um, congratulations again. Um, what would I say in terms of best advice? Um, probably I'd say never take no for an answer. Um, I would say people have said to me, I don't think you can do that throughout my long career and probably even when I was at school. And that just made me want to prove them wrong. So never take no. If you want to do it, go for it. Uh, wise words of inspiration, I certainly will. Um, another question here, how do we consumers know whether a company is being truthful to sustainable principles or just greenwashing? I suppose, you know, is there any form of transparency within this process? So that's a very, very topical question at the moment, because I think that there are a lot of organizations who, um, if I'm honest, are kind of jumping on the, the bandwagon here. Um, and I think it's quite difficult for consumers to be able to determine what's real um, and, and what is, if you like, sort of snazzy marketing. Um, I mean, of course, there are lots of sort of there are lots of transparency points, but I think probably the best way to keep us all um, on the straight and narrow is the use of social media. I mean, this didn't really exist sort of, you know, 10, 20, certainly not 30 years ago. And I think what's really, what gives me hope is that the speed of transmission of real life stories is incredibly quick. And I think that social media, whether you like it or not, personally, I'm not great on social media, but my children keep telling me I need to be better. Um, I think that, um, that is a good way to call, you know, um, bad, bad stories, bad news gets called out very quickly. And I think what's amazing is that the power in the hands of the consumer has become ever greater. I mean, if you think about even just how people are eating more healthily at the moment, I think people are much more aware of what they're putting into their own bodies. I mean, everything is very much rotating around, you know, alternatives to meat, 
solving many sort of challenges around sustainability. So I think we as a cons we as consumers, um, you know, our buying power is really meaningful. And I think if we force the issue on some of these things, companies will have no choice but to do the right thing in the right way. Um, thank you. Uh, and another one here, perhaps slightly more philosophical uh, in its proposition, but does every purpose have to be altruistic? You know, should companies always be doing this simply to give back or you know, is there some kind of implicit self-benefit in that? And I suppose, you know, is that right? Should companies always be doing it? for selfishness or uh, otherwise well i'd like to hope that people want to do the right thing actually um and uh, you know corporate purpose in many sectors is to deliver strong returns for their investors for their shareholders for all stakeholders but they also have a responsibility to look after their employees and I think, um, I mean, you know, history is littered with, with organizations who simply didn't even take things like health and safety very seriously. And some of their employees paid the ultimate price. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that um, it's about being selfish. I think it's just about doing the right thing. But I really feel strongly that it's not a choice. You're not doing the right thing or making money. The two can be absolutely co-joined. And I think... Um, Companies that get that right, those will be the ones that history will remember. Thank you. Uh, another one here. Um, most of the biggest green companies got to where they are now, uh, not necessarily being as sustainable as they are now. How do you think sustainable companies could grow now and in the future? Well, thank you, Charlie. It's lovely to see you uh, on the uh, on the Zoom call tonight. Thank you for that company uh, for that for that. Uh, thought-provoking question. Um, do you know, I think it comes back to one of the things that we were saying earlier, that I think the future of jobs is that they're going to be companies that just don't exist today. And I think that there are just so many different opportunities that will be created because of people's desire to be more sustainable. Um, for instance, I can I can think of one company that um, I've recently met the CEO and she's amazing. She's a female CEO. Um, but, you know, she's really tackling this whole space of, you know, how do we both protect the oceans, but also take ocean um, products and actually do something renewable with them. So one of the things that they're doing is effectively repurposing seaweed into making it both uh, something that can be used for packaging, but also, you know, a product that potentially can have use in, in foods because, you know, seaweed is an amazing nutrient. So I think for innovative people, they will spot opportunities and some of these, some of these businesses will scale massively. Um, and frankly, my experience is that it's so much easier to start with a great idea and then build something from that then, as you said, Charlie, try to repurpose some of these companies who are just wrestling with what they know to be right, but they have to kind of, it's like turning a super tanker, whether it's, you know, a monster oil company, you know, doing good things, but you've just got to change the whole ethos and philosophy. But, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to see what's going to play out. And I think, Jack, your generation is just going to have such a world of opportunity. Um, you're very lucky. I like to think so. I suppose it's 
about looking for where those opportunities are. Uh, and I think that follows quite nicely to the next question, uh, is where do you see in the world as leading in the path of sustainability at the moment? You know, what is that kind of that exciting area at the moment that's really driving through uh, on that front? That is, a, that is another very, very good question. Um, I mean, I think it's really, so a lot of things that I'm seeing at the moment are around um, how we create more circularity in our economy. So how we effectively repurpose things that we have forever, you know, bought off the shelves, for instance, used once or twice and then throw away. So there are a lot of very inter interesting circular business models that I'm seeing, particularly around, um, for instance, clothes. So clothes being repurposed. Um, um, I mean, I can certainly think of one of one business that I, I know the founders, she's been to speak at Radley before, and she effectively repurposes old, old fire hoses and creates handbags and sort of leather goods, right? So I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, how we just stop taking and throwing things away because there are certainly parts of the world where you know recycling just doesn't really happen very very easily or at all so i think thinking about those circular business models fascinating and then i mean i touched on it in my talk this evening i'm personally really passionate about the future of of blue finance the oceans because it cuts across so many things it cuts across coastal communities mangroves really really sort of help protect coastal environments from suffering erosion and apart from anything else you know the oceans have this amazing ability to capture and store carbon um, so it doesn't get released into the atmosphere and every time you know people are sort of dredging for clams and and you know other sort of things in the sea it just sort of stirs it all up um, so i think i think those two things would, would sort of be interesting areas that that i'd really want to explore uh, definitely. I think blue finance particularly, uh, especially, you know, people among my age place a lot more emphasis on you know, the health of the ocean uh, and a lot of the issues around that. And it's you know, very much discussed issues. So I think blue finance, at least from the perspective of my generation, is something that I will be following very closely. Uh, and another one here about your impact uh, you know, as an investment manager, how can you have kind of a real impact on these sustainable strategies? Uh, and you know, any examples that you can give to follow this? So actually, I'd refer back to um, one of the things I briefly touched on earlier this evening. Um, so there was this horrific incident in Bangladesh where this garment factory collapsed. Um, a lot of people died and it was awful. Um, what we practically did was work and mobilized other investors to basically lobby the companies who ultimately were having garments made in those factories to completely change their practices. Yeah, and frankly, you know, these were awful conditions. And we physically took the, the CEOs of some of these big clothing manufacturers, well, these big clothing retailers who have products made in, in parts of the world such as that. We took them to actually see, you know, what they were responsible for. And we drove real change in their behavior. As I said, it was just, it was their buying power, you know, transforming their supply chains, really thinking about the person at the end of the line who's maybe, you know, basically making a t-shirt for, you know, a few quid that they're going to sell for 30 quid in a shop in Oxford Street. So, you know, that's just one example. But absolutely, as, a, as an investor, if you engage in a way that is both measured, 
well thought through and um, very purposeful. Um, you know, I absolutely have seen this work over the years. And, you know, there are two approaches. You can stand on the sidelines and throw stones. You can run away or you actually work with the company trying to get them to do things differently. And that is altogether more fulfilling um, all round. Thank you. I think the um, example to do with uh, fast fashion is very interesting, especially people of my generation have begun to move away from that and view it very negatively and how finance really has a role in that uh, and kind of causing action on that perception uh, is very interesting. And another one here to sort of bring it back to the present is about COP26. You know, do you feel this was a success at what was achieved and kind of relating it more towards you know, your perspective, how did this impact uh, the world of finance? So, I mean, that's probably a whole topic in of itself, right? COP26, I suppose the most exciting thing about it was it was just down the road from me in Glasgow. So uh, that was exciting. Um, so I was very fortunate enough to have been in Paris when the um, real, when the real sort of groundbreaking um, uh, negotiations took place around people's ambitions around climate change. And it was an extraordinary place to be that week. The atmosphere was just alive and the sort of hope was great. I mean, I, I think progress was made at COP26, but I'm not sure it was enough, um, if I'm honest. And a bit like I said to you, never take no for an answer. I just think we could have done so much more. And um, I think it, it really falls to each and every one of us to think about what is the role that we can play because a lot of people doing something can make a big difference. But uh, I think that, yes, in some ways, uh, you know, we moved forward, but is it really going to be enough? And I think most importantly, how do we ensure that we're holding people to account against some of the commitments that were either made, um, you know, in previous years and really need to be driven through? Um. Yes, and I think there's another question here that I particularly like to ask, and it's to do with cryptocurrencies. And a lot of people of my age group have been kind of using it as a way to really get involved uh, within the markets. And do you think that you know, people using cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, the progression, progression of them uh, in daily life is a threat to the climate, especially when we see a lot of the data around the huge carbon emissions and things like mining Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I'm no crypto expert, Jack. So if you've got the insight, you know, far away, um, it's definitely a hot. It's definitely a hot topic. Um, is it real? Probably. Um, do people really know what they're getting into? I don't think they do. Uh, and um, does this mean that sort of cash and more traditional forms of um, passing currencies between people is dead? No. Um, but I think we definitely need to find a way to do it in an energy efficient way, um, because I think it probably is here to stay, but it will be a fraught path uh, along which some people will probably lose a lot of money. So I think, uh, uh, as they as they said in the city many years ago, buyer beware. Thank you. And to probably bring it to somewhere that I would say I'm slightly more familiar on. Uh, President uh, Xi Jinping said recently that jobs will be prioritised uh, over the environment, especially amid the kind of anxiety over an economic slowdown. And I suppose we can relate that to COVID and the damage that COVID has done to the economy in our own country. Um, you know, how will this impact China? How will this impact the West? Uh, and 
perhaps um, something I'd like to ask is how will that impact, I suppose, the relationship between them and you know, the potential for good on sustainable finance to be done between you know, the two largest economies in the world? So I've spent some time in China and it is an extraordinary country, but you really need, you know, you need the support of China in order to drive forward progress on matters that impact the climate. There's no doubt about it. So I think the interesting, I think the interesting observation is, as you said, Jack, you know, what, what will statements like this do to China's standing in the world? And I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's a very powerful country where if they say something, it generally goes. But I think that what I am worried about is what does it do in terms of an ability to destabilize some of the plans that we all have and the hopes that we had. Um, but it comes down to leadership, right? And, it, and as we saw in the States, when Trump was in um, the White House and basically took the US out of Paris and we'll just do our own thing, it created a huge amount of tension. And it comes back to what I said earlier, that if this is to be something that we can collectively achieve, it will take everybody to lean into this. So there are going to be bumps in the road, no doubt. But I think that um, you know China is a force to be reckoned with. And ultimately, we need them, we need India, we need the US, everybody needs to be on this path. Um, otherwise, we're just not going to do it. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. And I think leadership is very important and something I know you yourself have really highlighted the importance of personal leadership uh, in kind of bringing this all together. And um, another question here, uh, what investments do you avoid? Uh, and another question as well has been added to that. How do cryptocurrencies rate on your ESG criteria? Now, I'm not going to claim I know what ESG criteria is, uh, nor may others here so perhaps some clarification on that would be quite helpful um but you know relating to what i was asking about risks earlier you know are there investments that you avoid particularly within the sustainable sector well i mean i think there are i mean for me i mean i think the obvious um investments that that we would avoid that most people avoid is anything to do with cluster munitions i mean that's a very emotive topic and subject um I mean, I think equally, you know, depending upon people's bias, um, you know, anything that is is touching the sort of fields that are, are less desirable, I would say, you know, pornography, pornography, gaming. I mean, some of these sort of areas are uh, are areas that people would would not be wishing to sort of move, you know, move forward in. Um, how do cryptocurrencies rate on your ESG? Uh, you know, very good question. At the moment, we're, we're not investing. We're not investing in that sort of space. Um, and so therefore, uh, you can surmise that it doesn't quite hit, hit, hit the mark in terms of what we're looking for around good, transparent companies that are doing the right thing for society at the moment. Uh, thank you. Um, and I think that the emphasis on, you know, what's considered... Uh, moral and where the moral comes into business um, is something that you know, a lot of people my age particularly consider you know even when they're choosing companies and you know let's say going for things like fair trade products uh, it may seem small but I think it certainly doesn't add up in terms of the perception of the consumer uh, and the last question here um, from your own experience uh, when you engage with companies uh, to change their ESG behaviors uh, and principles how often are companies not willing to change you know what is kind of limiting them uh, what is stopping them you know is there any kind of hesitancy 
uh, within a company? So I think I think my response would be that people are, are always willing to listen. Whether or not that listening translates into practical action um, remains to be seen. But for the most part, I would say that we're, we're not lone voices. I mean, the asset management industry is, is a huge industry now. And companies who are public um, and increasingly companies who are private, I think just understand that their license to operate is going to be inextricably linked uh, to their ability to be seen to, to be doing the right thing, whatever that is. So, you know, if companies are going to be so blinkered and not wanting to change, you know, perhaps it's an issue of timing, perhaps it's an issue of maybe they need to sort of move from here to here and, and they're doing it in a gradual way because of, you know, how much it costs or whatever. But I think more, more or less companies that really are so resistant to change are going to struggle in the public markets and may end up just being privately held, family-owned businesses. But um, uh, I think ultimately for public companies, this is very definitely the direction of travel. Um, if you want to, as I said, if you want to have and keep your license to operate. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it's an incredibly exciting prospect. And I, as someone who perhaps never really considered the impact finance could have, I've uh, suddenly been quite captivated by it. And it's, you know, perhaps maybe even pushing me in the direction of a financial career. Who knows? Um, but it's at that point that uh, I hand back to Caroline. I'd just like to say thank you uh, so much for such an illuminating talk uh, and to listen to a perspective that, you know, perhaps uh, we don't hear enough of, I think, uh, you know, from the investment managers as compared to just from the consumers. Uh, so thank you. Well, thanks, Catherine, and thanks, Jack. You were both absolutely brilliant. Catherine, I could listen to you all night. Jack, you're an absolute natural, and if it doesn't work out at Oxford, I'm pretty sure you can go into TV. So I think we're good there. Thank you. It's, it's been brilliant, really, really fascinating. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, we'll have our next Big Thinking talk in March, and we're lucky enough to have old Radley and Oliver Bayless, Director of Architect Firm Buckley Gray Yeoman, who's going to come and tell us about cities of the future. So that's our next future topic. Thank you all for coming. Have a lovely evening, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radley and Society.